Armstrong preferred to keep his dissatisfactions to himself, becoming a symbol of change rather than a spokesperson of. That tension comes to vivid life in Jenkins' worthy account. That's Joshua Rothkoff of Entertainment Weekly. He's talking about Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. That's our feature review this week here on Cinephile. Our old movie is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, an old anti-Western from Robert Alban, stars Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. I'll explain why I saw it and why I really enjoyed it. And we got a couple wild cards for all of you. Elvis Mitchell, who's one of the best film critics out there, longtime film critic for the New York Times, has a terrific film. It's called Is That Black Enough For You? It's all about black film in the 70s, and it's an excellent documentary. You should all check it out. Elvis is going to join us, talk about that, talk a little Scorsese, talk a little Spike Lee, do the right thing. Very, very good. And the big one, Sean Levy, The Last Castle on Sunset, the author of a terrific book, Mike Ryan, who you know and love from the Dan Lebertard Show. He told Chris to tell me about it, then he texted me about it. I read the book, I loved it, and we had the author, Cody. This is all thanks to Mike Ryan. Levy delivered. And this interview's working blue. This is right up Adnan's alley. <laughs> there is no denying that definitely is the case. As always, uh, yeah, we should try to tease what exactly. Dennis Hopper, there's Dennis Hopper stories. There's stuff about Belushi, obviously, is very Belushi, good. So, yeah. yeah there's, basically, there's this, there's this hotel. It's called the Chateau Marmont. It's been there in Hollywood for years, and he literally shows like the history of movies and all the crazy stuff that has happened there. Benicio Del Toro, Scarlett Johansson, and the elevator. Trust me, you're going to want to listen to this interview. <laughs> uh, a quick thought here in sports media news. So I was just on Richard Deitch's podcast, a sports media podcast. I've done it like six or seven times. So when Rich asked me, I'm like, I, I have nothing new to add. I think everyone knows my life story. Whether you like me or hate me, there's nothing interesting anymore. But I said, how about you do with Adam Amin, who of course I love. And Adam Amin listens to every Cinephile episode. I go, hey, I will pump up Adam Amin anytime I can. So if you want to listen to Richard Deitch's sports media podcast, hour and a half with me and Adam Amin. Although, as I said to him, Cody, you know, at one point I was kind of like Tobey Maguire. Like, oh, oh, that guy's in Spider-Man. Now, I'm Tobey Maguire in 2022 as in he's a good friend of Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, I'm more known as I'm a good friend of Adam Amin, who, by the way, is on Fox Sports and he's like the number three NFL guy, number two baseball guy, voice of the Chicago Bulls. But I was happy to Should be number one. He's great, by the way. He 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 could be the number one Fox football guy. He is outstanding. And everything he does, he is brilliant at it. He actually called the... uh, his baseball work is amazing. He did the Padres Dodgers series with my buddy Tom Verducci. I just worked with him. I was telling Tom, I go, bro, Adam Amini. I'm like, he's 35. Like, Cody, you're 34, aren't you? You're younger than that. 35. You, so you and Adam Amini are the same age. Like, you guys Makes are- me feel like a failure. <laughs> I'm trying Arrow- to think what in broadcasting I'm on the number three team for. <laughs> Arrow pointing up. Adam Amini and Chris Cody, both <laughs> the age of 35. Um, speaking of sports media, though, so the shock here is Dan Levitard, who is Chris's boss in many ways, and of course my boss, I guess, with Metal Arc, he never does these types of things. Like, I'm the guy that like, yeah. asked me to do it. I'm like, yeah, I'll, sure, whatever you want. Like, I, I'm doing, I have a podcast coming up, Art Eddie. How about this? He DMs me and goes, can you come on my podcast? I can't say no quickly enough, but very crafty. I go to my desk and he tends to DM. He goes, hey, did you get that package I sent him? I'm like, oh my God, like, this is like cyanide. But, but, it's two boxes of milk duds. Like, this guy's unbelievable. So that proves he listens <laughs> he to listens. Cinephile. Yes. Andy sent a gift. They go, bro, no problem. I did like 40 minutes. He had that podcast is coming up. Uh, it's about fatherhood and a lot of other random things. Has Lauer After Hours tried to get you? Yes, they've done it a few times. They've, they've DM'd me, and I'm like, listen, I love those guys, but like, you should have on Chris and Roy and, and Billy. Yeah. Like, they're like, no, but you're part of that, that whole aesthetic. I'm like, they've tried it for everybody. We've all basically done it. Some people have like, but yeah, they go for, if you have any association to Levitar, they want yeah. you. I was like, you should be getting Ron McGill or like John Amici. Like, I'm not really, they're like, oh, come on, come on, we need you. You're right. Lauer After Hours, those guys are definitely on to me. Um, anyways. I, lo- I love how you were like, I'll do anyone's pot, except Lauer After Hours. I, I, I have not done I've not done After Hours. <laughs> so, so Levitard does Jimmy Traina's podcast. And I was like, wow. Like, when it popped in my feet, I go, Dan never does this kind of stuff. This is like, 
This is a big deal. This is Jeremy Strong doing Cinephile. Jeremy Strong doesn't do interviews. Dan Lemon doesn't do an interview. I encourage everyone to listen to it. It was a Jimmy Trana, Sports Illustrated Media Podcast, Hour Plus, mentions Chris Cody. I don't want to get into all this stuff, but he mentions what happened with Chris at ESPN. Since was that the straw that broke the camel's and back? And Dan verifies what I always say. Okay, that was a bad. That that's like the kid getting blamed for a divorce. All right, this this was a bad relationship. Something was going to be the final straw. It just happened to be me. I hate when people. Yes. They're like, they run with this on the air. Dan does with like, I'm the reason we left ESPN. Nonsense. Yeah, Dan very carefully said, I think it would have, exactly what you just said, it would have been something else. Like, yes, that was what pissed me off and ended up being the incident, but there was lots of other stuff. It wasn't like we had a harmonious relationship, but all of a sudden something right. happened with Chris. I'm like, no, no, there was a lot of other stuff. Yeah. But here's what I found most fascinating. At the end of the interview, Trina's like, and this is a very legitimate question, you know, obviously, Dan, love your work. You're very original, very unique in the space, but what is a radio show that you listen to or that influenced you? Very basic question. When I talk to Jeremy Strong, I'm already saying it for him. I know you love Pacino. I know you love Daniel Day-Lewis. If you ask Dan me... Dan says nothing, yeah, right? <laughs> if you ask me, I'm like, Oberman, Costas, Joe Buck, Dan Schulman, Adam Amin, Max Brett. I was like, I have 100 people I admire and respect. The late Sean Saunders. Dan, no one. He said, well, there must be somebody. Like, growing up in South Florida, you must have liked... No. There's really no... So wait a second. You got into sports radio, and you're obviously a great writer, and there's nobody you respect, nobody you admire. Nope. I, I, I think, think they all suck. Isn't his reason? He's basically like, I kind of took, I surveyed the land and saw no one was good at this. Right. So it's a low bar for me to get over. <laughs> it was a hysterical answer. Even Colin Cowherd was on with Rosillo, and Ryan goes, who else do you listen to? And Colin said, he goes, there's not many. Like, he made a joke. He's like, well, nobody's at my level, but I love Mad Dog. Like, Mad Dog Russo is still great. Nobody as good as Dan Levitard, at least in Dan Levitard's mind. I thought it was hysterical. Make sure you check it out to Jimmy Trainer's Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. All right, let's get to the movie, shall we? Oh, by the way, also great, Tim Kirchner was on the Levitard show. You guys should listen to him. Him and Mike Sure together was excellent. We brought up the fact Kurt Schilling said that Matt Stairs is better than Babe Ruth. Take a listen. That's all I have to say. And, <laughs> and Cody referencing Cinephile because Ron McGill, you brought up Gorillas. And Ron yes. had talked about Gorillas with us here on Cinephile. What Ron, do you think of this? I know we're, we got to get to the movies, but yeah. like the, the, the notion that these all time greats in the 40s and 50s would in the 20s would be terrible today. I think it's absurd. And I'm with Kirk Jim when he said, I think all great players would eventually adapt in any era. Now, I'll put it this way though the average baseball player today, would be better than the average baseball player in 1920. Like, absolutely. But I think Babe Ruth, as Tim said, would adapt. Like, maybe he would struggle the first month of the season, but I think he'd figure it out. Like, I think he'd, right. oh, wait, there's the I love how they shoots. have him being in this era, but as a 19... It's like, if he's in right. this era, he's going to look like the people that looked like... It's right. like, we right. can't, like, it's yes. weird. He would understand protein shakes. He would yes. get the fact, i got to work out a little more. I'm not going to eat hot dogs after every game. But uh, <laughs> it's definitely a fun conversation. Speaking of old school, we're going to kick things off with Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. Follow the life and legacy of the master and so-called founding father of jazz, America's first pop star and cultural ambassador directed by Sasha Jenkins. It's a very loving and affectionate tribute. I first got into jazz when I was in college. Again, I'm older than Cody. So this was 97. Um, Reservoir Lounge is a great jazz club in Toronto we used to go to. This is when like swing jazz really, there was part of the revolution. Remember the Gap commercials? Louis Prima, Jump, Jive, and Whale. Swingers was a huge hit. Jazz clubs started popping up. You go swinging out there with your, with your lady and it was great. And I said, oh, I love that era. I love the zoot suit and the, the, the fedoras, that whole era and that aesthetic. Favreau himself, just like me, he's like, oh, I love you know Sinatra. I love the Rat Pack. I love those guys and that era, what it stands for. So Ken Burns' Jazz, which came out, I think, when I say 2001, was incredible because I really was kind of interested in that music and that world. And I watched, ended up getting uh, the CDs of like, you know, each artist. I'd be like, all right, John Coltrane or Winston Marsalis or obviously Louis Armstrong and uh, Thelonious Monk. So I went with my buddy Cabby. We went for Louis Armstrong's 100th birthday celebration. It was in August of 2001 in New Orleans. I'd never been to New Orleans before, needed a reason to go. Like, let's check it out. You know, 
And it was amazing because New Orleans is unlike, for Chris being in South Florida, you probably would see a lot of commonalities, the humidity, the food, et cetera. But for me, I was like, this place is awesome. I got gator bites. I can go eat alligators. And yeah. like I said, the jazz the jazz is obviously bumping crawfish. it. Crawfish. The crawfish. Oh, this is so cool down here. Oh, my God. Cornbread every day. I'm like, okay, cool. So I, I just love that city. I love the aesthetic. And Louis Armstrong really is New Orleans' favorite son. And he's so critical to jazz music. And one of the great things about Ken Burns' documentaries is throughout his documentary, he'll make sure every single chapter includes his favorite person, meaning baseball is 10 innings long, but every single chapter, he includes something about Jackie Robinson. Even though Jackie only played from 47 to 56, in the first episode, it's like Jackie Robinson was born in 1908, and then 1920, Jackie Robinson did this. So with jazz, he always includes Louis Armstrong in every chapter, because he's like, this is the guy without whom jazz would not exist. So with that as, as backstory, I watched the documentary, enjoyed it, it's on Apple+, Plus, and what I liked about it is it was you know fairly quick pace, hour 47 minutes, explains Louis' life. But here's the challenge I find, Chris, with documentaries. How do you make something beyond the essence of this? Louis Armstrong was born here, overcame some poverty, became a star, had a marriage. Maybe there's some infidelity. Maybe there isn't some drug stuff. Here's some good stuff, some bad stuff. You wrap things up and you put a bow. Like all documentaries have that basic format. So while watching the documentary, I liked it and I enjoyed it and I found it informative, but there wasn't necessarily revelatory information to me with the exception of this, which you did mention in that blurb, which is probably my favorite part of the movie. So... You get the stuff about the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens, very influential records made in the 1920s. But if all you know about Louis Armstrong is What a Wonderful World, or if you know um, the stuff from When Harry Met Sally, yeah, then you really don't know a whole lot about Louis Armstrong as a person. And what I found most fascinating was, and this is interesting because we just talked to Nelson George and Colin Hanks about Willie Mays. And Jackie Robinson criticized Willie Mays for not being as outspoken as he would have liked about civil rights. Louis Armstrong similarly was criticized at the time unfairly for being an Uncle Tom. And... Ozzie Davis, the great actor, says in the doc, he goes, when I see Louis Armstrong, I picture the big bug eyes and the huge smile, like, you know, alligator teeth and mopping the sweat in his brow and, you know, dancing and such. He's like, so all of a sudden I think of him as like this classic black man entertaining the white people. And it's, it's really unfair. And one of the most interesting parts of the doc is you hear the audio recordings of Louis Armstrong. Let me tell you something. Guy cursed like a sailor. Like, I, I was not expecting the mother effers and the sea suckers and other words that Louis dropped. I'm like, okay. It, 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 he clearly cared about civil rights. He was impacted by these things, but he wasn't going to be a rabble rouser. He felt he could make an impact purely by who he was rather than what he was saying, which goes back to what you can talk about with sports. You know, people have criticized Jordan or Jeter or Tiger Woods and said, you know what? I wish you guys were more like Jim Brown or more like LeBron James, a little more outspoken about social change. And those guys would argue, Hey, listen, first off, I'm an athlete. I, I'm not I'm not here to you know worry about social justice and civil rights. I'm here to be who I am. And just by the person of my character, I can impact people. I always find it to be a tricky debate, but it depends on that person. And in the case of Louis Armstrong, the guy changed jazz music. He changed American music. And for many people, that was more than enough. Like, what does somebody owe us, right? Just because you're a celebrity and famous, like you owe us to speak on certain issues. Like LeBron speaks out more than Jordan did. Yes. But then he gets criticized. Like you see LeBron getting criticized for that as well from the same in the same right, breath. Shut up so, and play. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how to like I don't know that that's always a tough one for me. Yeah, it's always tricky. So I can just imagine for Lou Armstrong, you know, how frustrated he must have been by some of that criticism. But I listen. 
as a vocalist, maybe he's A minus, B plus. As a trumpeter, he's a, like off the charts A plus, one of the great trumpeters of all time. If you listen to the song Stardust, it's one of my favorite songs. You know, the, the, the open by Louis Armstrong is amazing. Um, if you listen to West End Blues, it's a great song, and, and you can appreciate Louis' majesty. So I, I really enjoy the documentary for showing. Racists listen to music too. <laughs> exactly. And people would say that. They're like, oh, blacks were not allowed in the club, but man, that Louis Armstrong can blow. I'm like, oh, he's unbelievable in that trumpet. So we can't let him into this place. He's playing the Cotton Club in Harlem. God forbid he goes anywhere else, but man, he can play. So I, I enjoyed it. It's a rare doc. I thought it could have been a little bit longer, maybe kind of a little bit deeper into Louis Armstrong who he was. Other stuff I didn't know, liked his marijuana. I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense from that era. He's some handwritten stuff in him joking about Mary Jane. I'm like, okay, sure. Louis getting high after doing a couple of shows. But overall, I thought it was, it was interesting in that it showed that this guy was much more than what people thought he was. Really impactful and obviously very influential in the world of music and jazz. Nate Chinon of NPR says, what the documentary does with focus and flair is explore Armstrong's multifaceted experience as a black American musician who came of age right along with the 20th century and during the worst and somehow embodying the best. I'll give it three minute beliefs. It's Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues available on Apple+. Plus. Now let's get to our first of two interviews today. Sean Levy, bringing the heat. Well, it's a real thrill to bring in Sean Levy right now. He wrote an outstanding book called The Castle on Sunset. Mike Ryan recommended it to me. He simply texted the picture because you'll love this book. I went to the library, I got the book, and I loved it. He was right. He's also written In on the Joke, which is fabulous, which I wait, can't wait to read right now. Sean, first and foremost, thanks so much for joining us, and congrats on writing a, a riveting book. If you love old Hollywood, this is a hell of a book. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to hear. Let's kick it off first, because this is uh, the thing that most stunned me. I, I love this stuff about Nicholas Ray on page 127. He has a relationship with Gloria Graham, and he employs private detectives to surveil Graham and catch her with one of her men on her side. They couldn't get the goods on her. So one day he goes home, he hears some noises from the bedroom and storming in to find Graham in bed with a lover, his own 13-year-old son, Tony, from his first marriage. That's about as jarring as it gets here, Sean. I, I have a 14-year-old by myself. I can't imagine coming home and finding my son with my lover. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think it was good for anybody, but uh, particularly the, the, the old joke where the woman walks in on her husband says, I'm surprised. He says, no, my dear, we are surprised. You are astonished. Um, you know, they, they were all set back. And, and by the way, after Nicholas Ray moved out, he spent eight years living at Chateau Marmont, during which time he wrote and directed um, Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, when Tony, his son, became of legal age, he married Gloria Graham, his ex-stepmother, and they had children together. So <laughs> at least it wasn't a one-off. <laughs> They got what they were looking for when it came to that relationship. But, but the way you write it is so well, uh, just the fact that Ray's astonishment, as you said. There's also just some fascinating material in there about Natalie Wood. This in particular, I, I, this is unreal. So there's a story you're telling here about Wood and Dennis Hopper. One evening, Hopper recalled she phoned him with the most astonishing declaration. I'd like to fuck you, but I don't do anything. I just lay there. I have to do a little rehearsing with Nick at the Chateau, but if you can pick me up after. Again, she's talking about Nicholas Ray. He was there in a shot, whisking her away, only to realize he didn't have any access to any place where they might consummate the act. Just go up the hill, she told him. I know a lover's lane. Once there, Hopper said, I started to go down on her, and she said, oh, you can't do that. I said, why? She said, because Nick just fucked me. Hopper found the situation bizarre, but he was only 18 himself and wasn't turned off. Rather, he was inflamed. In the following days, just as he had stalked it, he began to snake furtively around Chateau Marmont, hoping to catch Ray and Wood in flagrante. Yeah, um, you know... 
this, this, this falls under the realms of if I had made it up, my my people close to me might have taken me aside and you know maybe had an intervention. Um, this is all documented in in Dennis Hopper's autobiography and in interviews with uh, Natalie Wood um, in in scholarly books about Nicholas Ray. These things really happened. Um, Chateau Marmont in the 50s was kind of like a, 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 a laboratory of alternative lifestyles. It had um, it didn't have a bar. It had a pool and it had these bungalows where they were so cheap in the 80s. Nicholas Ray lived at the hotel for eight years. Today, the cheapest room in that hotel is about 600 bucks a night. And the bungalows are about five grand a night. He had a bungalow for eight years. And in that bungalow, he had people like Marlon Brando, James Dean, Natalie Wood, Dennis Hopper, all kinds of bohemians from all around Hollywood coming and going at all hours. It was an amazing time. Yeah, it's amazing how you're talking about like a hotel ends up being this this meeting place for all these different events. Like you said, and the, the hotel changes over time. It's it's chic, then it's hip, then it's different, then it's old, then it's decrepit, then it's reborn. But it ultimately ends up being this meeting place for so many people. At one point, Howard Hughes is there. He's just he's just he's just stalking young women. Like he's not he's not doing anything other than just peering out of his window, staring at women. It was like the ultimate voyeuristic place to be. Yeah, you know, it's it's a funny hotel. It was built as an apartment house just before the Great Depression. So it was was these luxury apartments. And if you think about the you know, sort of architectural difference between an apartment house and a hotel, a hotel has gathering places and a central lobby and recreation places and you know, a restaurant and a bar. An apartment house doesn't have any of those. It's built so that you, you park your car, you get in your elevator, you go to your, your unit, you have a kitchen, you're self-enclosed. When it became a hotel, suddenly people realized, oh, this is like uh, almost like a home away from home, like a bolt hole. And I can stay there, you know, if if someone was staying at Chateau Marmont during the heyday, you knew their marriage was on the rocks because it was a temporary home. And for someone like Howard Hughes, it was like a duck blind. He could just be there hunting young women who would be using the pool. And he had a penthouse uh, unit over the over the swimming pool and he used binoculars and he would he would uh, troll for dates. Again, if you just know Chateau Marmont and a casual level, you go, oh, wait, is that where Belushi died? And indeed, Sean does an amazing job in the book detailing everything that happened. Um, I think that one of the more revelatory insights is De Niro was, I don't want to say involved, but he was there. Like he was doing cocaine with John. He was there the night before. Tell us a little bit about De Niro's, I don't want to say involvement, but just the fact he was there and the circumstances. Robert De Niro is one of those people who traditionally stayed at Chateau Marmont, being a New Yorker through and through. The idea that he could have been central... Hollywood and have an apartment that reminds you of a New York apartment was very appealing. He kept a car there and he partied with John Belushi in New York. They met at after parties for Saturday Night Live episodes and they continued that relationship in California. It was the 80s. De Niro was, you know, dabbling in, in, in drugs from a period in the late 70s on. And Belushi was more than dabbling. Belushi was you know, he had gone pro and, um, you know, he had drug dealers in and out of his bungalow. Robin Williams was there on and off and De Niro was there on and off. And they were both there the night that John Belushi succumbed to an overdose, not during the episode, but prior. And Chris, the way that Sean describes it is like, 
Let's play the lap. But John Belushi's like, hey, come on over. De Niro walks in. I was like, okay, there's way too much cocaine. Like, there's just too much going on. Robin Williams, same thing. It's like, it's, a, it's like even as you said, some people are dabbling, but this is like overload of cocaine. De Niro referred to the woman who was eventually convicted of giving Belushi uh, the fatal shot. Um, he thought she looked trashy. And in this environment, you're like, man, that had to be trashy because this was already like a decadent, like heavy duty, you know, OG rock and roll scene. And, you know, even those people were like, yo, dude. There's also some stories that are like just funny, just in terms of like people have perceptions the way they are. This is really funny. It's page 284. In the wake of Simpson's acquittal, Dominic Dunn, who's a really famous author. Slack-jawed reaction to the verdict from his front row perch is one of the most memorable images at the courtroom cameras broadcast on that surreal day. The writer was flying back to New York when he realized to his horror he had left something behind in his suite. We've all been there, right? He phoned the hotel as soon as his plane landed and spoke with the assistant manager. Something terribly embarrassing has happened. I need your help. I'm afraid I left a pornographic video of a very low-rent nature in the VCR. Do you think you could remove it before Maria the maid finds it? We've become very good friends in the last two years. I don't want to go down in her estimation. Fortunately, he noted, nothing shocks at the chateau. Not only did the manager volunteer to fetch the incriminating item immediately, he offered to send it to New York. Good God, no, Dunn replied. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even the, even the journalists who are there to cover crimes are indulging. You know, there's something about... You know, it's a, you go into certain places, the Chelsea Hotel in Manhattan, the Columbia Hotel in London. They just like, you know, like, oh, Jimi Hendrix partied here, Janis Joplin. You know, there's a vibe. And I think that you just kind of, you know, they're, they're like mini Vegases. What happens in them stays in them. And I think you, you go there so you can indulge a little bit of that side of yourself. I did not know Dominic Dunn was prone to VHS porn, but if, if there was going to be a place you did it, it would be the Chateau. <laughs> I just love how it's already of a low rent nature. Like yeah, it's yeah. Particularly, he's like, you know, this isn't tasteful. Like Maria is going to be judging me. Um, again, other celebrities, they just love pushing the edge. Alan Cumming bragged about having sex on the piano in his suite and delighting when the following day he could see smears in the shiny black surface of the instrument while receiving business guests. Like some of these guys are just reveling in the filth. And there's also the story, but Benicio Del Toro apparently having sex in an elevator with a very prominent actress. This is a story, and, and everyone told it, and then everyone quickly denied it, so who can say? But uh, it was Oscar night, and Benicio Del Toro and Scarlett Johansson were both staying at Chateau Marmont. And, you know, I'm going to say that they smooched in the elevator, you know? It's, it, it really is. It's only a seven-story building, and, and, you know, the elevator ride is only so long. And, you know, <laughs> Benicio has a very funny way, you know, he's like, who can say if this happened? But, you know, he does say, well, logistically, my jacket was on. It was a cool night, you know. So, um, you know, they, they made a joke about it. It became urban legend and they've spent years denying it. But, you know, I choose to believe that it could have happened. What was the age, just to be clear, Sean, of Benicio and Scarlett Johansson? Oh, God, he would have been 40 odd and she would have been about 22, 24. The reason I asked that is I am 44, and if I was caught in an elevator having sex with a 22-year-old woman, I, it would not be the stuff of urban legend. I would be castigated and insulted. In this case, as you write in the book, Del Toro's gained fame out of this. It's like, hey, high five. I heard about that story. You know, it's it's Hollywood. Uh, there's there's a novelist named Leonard Michaels who says that, you know, uh, the 20-year-old the girl is to Hollywood what the Mustang is to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> That is an all-time <laughs> great line. Adnan, this is the perfect book for you, by the way. 
I didn't get that. I haven't read this book yet, but this is right up Adnan's alley. There's also, and it's amazing, honestly, you got to read the book because there's so many different iterations of this hotel and the way it goes. And this is what really is impressive what you do, Sean, because when it comes to this one character, I go, oh, wow, he kind of turned it around. He was forward thinking and he was smart. And then all of a sudden you go, wait, oh, no. He's sexually harassing people. And I'm talking about Andre Balas and what story here. Now, this is, it's amazing the way you tell it, but I'll tell the specific story. So, again, the way you set up the narrative is really smart. Because, like, oh, look at all the good he's doing and the way this is happening. He is partying with a bunch of people. Um, horrible bosses, too, with Jason Bateman. So, he encourages her. This is Anka, I believe, Jason Bateman's wife. Yes, yeah, she's wearing a short leather skirt. And he encourages her to go to see like a notable view of central London, climbing a ladder to the spot. Instead, he slips a hand under her skirt and grabs her crotch. Anka immediately told all present what happened. A fracas ensued with Bateman confronting Balas so angrily, he spit a wad of chewing gum into the hotelier's face. Bateman and Anka soon left the party, managing to put on happier, at least blank faces for the paparazzi. Actress Mary Elizabeth Ellis, among those on the scene, said, I witnessed behavior by Andre Balas that was inappropriate and offensive. And a spokesman for Anka confirmed the account of his outrageous and vile behavior. This assault, described by Sarah, evinced a similar behavior, a quick, surprising move, an uns suspecting women in semi-public settings. I, I don't expect you to be a psychologist here, Sean, but this is another example. He grabbed her arm, pinned her against the wall, covered her mouth with his mouth. He put his hand on the front of her pants and pushed his fingers in her vagina. How can a guy be so smart and be so stupid? Ah, well, this is this is a bigger question than just this one individual. But, um, you know, this uh, Andre Balaj is a billionaire. Um, his father was a, a, a biochemist who sold invented things and sold them off twice for nine figures. And he created, he's, he's, he is a genius at sort of scene setting, party throwing, um, a visionary who turned a, basically a derelict hotel. You go into Chateau Marmont today and you think, wow, this must have been what it was like when Humphrey Bogart was here or, or Greta Garbo. No, when they were there, it was kind of a rundown dive. And that's why they went there, because like people wouldn't look for them at a place like that. Now, you know, you go into a room that's like $1,200 a night and the toaster in your little kitchenette looks like a vintage toaster. It happens to be a state of the art, like KitchenAid new old fashioned looking toaster, but it is, you know, it has that vibe. So he had this vision and he turned this place into a gem that it never really was. But I think also people who, you know, can point at a thing and say, I want that, I want it to be this way, don't see the same, um, you know, so socially, uh, uh, in I'm trying to find a delicate way to say this. They, they don't see the same limitations placed on them that you and I have placed on us by our our, our own upbringing or perhaps our own sense of who we are in the world, that everything is not there for the taking. And, you know, the, the Chateau has fallen into disrepute in the last few years. There's been an active boycott, picketers, um, because some of his labor practices, some of the management, um, some of the problems in management to do with sexual and racial hiring quotas and, and people of color and women not being promoted where they should be. So, you know, I, I think that goes part and parcel with never hearing the word no in life. You know, no, this guy doesn't go into a restaurant and they say, oh, no, I'm sorry, we, we just sold the last one of those. Someone runs out and gets whatever it is he's ordering. You know, I, I, unfortunately, I think once you have that worldview, the, the boundaries that you and I might respect aren't there. 
Yeah, that's a pretty smart way of explaining and trying to identify exactly his behavior. Again, for those who haven't read the book, you got to read The Castle on Sunset. It's amazing. Uh, as you can see, the, the, the train of thought I'm going with, who caused the most damage in a hotel room? Because it almost seems like at one point it's a badge of honor, right? The Rolling Stones were going to go there and trash the place. Who caused the most damage in the history of the Chateau Marmont? Boy, that's, that's hard to say. I was able to verify that two people were asked never to come back, and, and it's surprising. One was Bob Dylan, and one was... Lindsay Rich, oh no, Richie Havens, the, the oh, folk, yeah. folk singing guitarist who passed recently. The person who, well, there are two other people banned that I could confirm. And this is 2019. So anyone who might have been revealed as having been banned from the hotel since then is not in the book, which is three years old now. Lindsay Lowen ran up a hotel bill uh, upwards of $45,000 in about six weeks. She was under the impression that the uh, people uh, producing the movie she was making would be paying her lodging. They did not share that impression, nor did her contract. And uh, she had to do some negotiating. But somebody in her entourage leaked the eviction notice that she got and the itemized bill. And it was incredible. You're looking at like two, three grand a day in minibar charges on a lot of days. Um, and then uh, Britney Spears was asked to leave. You know, she was having during that episode uh, about eight, 10 years ago where she was having very public mental health crises. Um, she was uh, behaving bizarrely in the restaurant. She was seated next to Victoria Beckham, uh, Posh Spice, at the next table. And she, uh, Brittany was smearing herself with, with her food and she was asked to leave and not come back. And God bless, you know, uh, she's gotten some better care. But, you know, this is, if you're in the hospitality business, particularly in Hollywood, California, you need to be able to abide a lot. You don't want to be... Um, get the reputation of a place that says no. And while I was working on the book, I thought, well, yeah, anything goes at this place. It's, 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 a, it's like an orgy dome. And I was like, no, actually, it's an oasis. Because if you're a certain type of person, if you have certain proclivities, if you're not hurting anyone, if you're doing it in private, they will let you be, you know, you may get a bill afterwards to replace the lamp or, you know, whatever it is, but, you know, you pay your bill and they'll respect that you're, you know, you're a grown adult and you're making these choices. And I kind of admire that, you know, it's if you're in the hospitality business, unless you really are catering to like the Saudi royal family, you have to you know, look the other way. We've all been to hotels and done crazy stuff. This happens to be a nice hotel and the people doing the crazy stuff are famous. What's the most damage author Sean Levy's ever done to a hotel room? Hmm. <laughs> Give it up. Give think, it up, I Sean. Think, I think it involved a lamp. I, I brought up a lamp. Uh, that, that, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a hotel room in San Francisco. There were children involved and my own. And it was it was horseplay, you know, with with boys who were, you know, in that don't blame it on the kids, Sean. I like to jump from bed to bed, no, no, too. No, no, I like no. to jump from bed to bed, too. You got to do it. OK. All right. Uh, OK. It's a, like I say, safe spaces. I'm glad I can unburden myself. Big, big thanks to Sean Levy for running the castle on Sunset. I do have to go to that hotel one day. I'm glad you mentioned the prices. That was going to be my first question. So 600 bucks minimum. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at. Um, now, you know, if, if, if someone else is paying, it's also very hard to get a room there at all, including the bungalows. Chateau Marmont only has 63 keys, as they say in the hotel trade. That's another reason why it's popular with celebrities. It's not like the Beverly Hills Hotel with hundreds of rooms. Uh, you know, th there's hotels in Vegas that have more than 63 rooms on a single floor. And, you know, here's a hotel where, like, if you want to get in, 
you know, you got to know somebody, you know, particularly at certain times of the year, because, you know, uh, fashion brands and cosmetics and hairstylists will take over the whole floor for Oscar week or Grammy week because they do fittings and, and, and dress people and prepare them for the big show in those suites. It's amazing to think about. Sean Levy, congrats. I want everyone to go check out his book, support his work. Sean, this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Uh, cheers. Thank you, fellas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, thanks again to Sean. As Chris said, we were working blue. Now let's talk about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, 1971 Western. You already know where this backstory is going. Why did I watch this movie? Because as I told Chris and all of you previously on Cinephile, I was working for NBC during the Olympics, and uh, our floor director, Julie, made a passing reference to Richard Dreyfuss and the Goodbye Girl. And I go, damn it, that's a reference in a movie I should know. So then I watched the movie. With Howard Bryant recording his Metal Lurkers podcast on Federer, me and... Uh, or who's our man there from uh, Billions? Coppelman. Oh, yeah. At the end, he goes, hey, for a couple movie guys here, I close with a quote from a cape and Mrs. Miller. I got stories. And Coppelman's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I know the movie. I didn't get the joke. I don't get the reference. So I had to watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller just for Howard Bryant. Cranked it up on HBO Max. It's on TCM. Here's the story. A gambler and a prostitute become business partners in a remote Old West mining town, and their enterprise thrives until a large corporation arrives on the scene. Altman's a really fascinating director, really important in the 1970s. I've had Ben Mankiewicz on before, a TCM host, and I said 1970s movies are the best. He goes, well, specifically, it's 1967 and 1977. Those movies really stand up well. So this film is 71. Allman also made Nashville, which is a film I'm not crazy about, but I, but I appreciate his stories. Sprawling stories, overlapping dialogue, you know, always has a really unique sensibility. And he's got two great actors here, Warren Beatty and Julie Christie. Um, there's a couple of memorable lines of dialogue. First off, Warren Beatty begins his day with a double whiskey and a raw egg. Like, Chris and I can be hard livers, but that, that's a tough way to live. Maybe back in the old wild, wild west. At one point he says, I'll just get the regular. And the guy knows, yeah, double whiskey and a raw egg. This is long before raw. Have you ever first. done a raw egg? Have you ever swallowed a raw no, egg? No, I've never done it. You? 
No, I, I would have only done it if I was like dared to. No, I've never done it, but I, I've always been intrigued by it. Who was it back in the day? There was like a movie where like the, the guy would always. Was it Rocky? Yeah, Rocky Rocky's was drinking Because Paul Newman and Cool Hand Luke, he eats like whatever, 68 boiled eggs, but like actual, just the yolk. And I mean, today, oh. egg whites is the way to go anyway. So, I mean, Rocky, what the hell was he thinking? Yeah. Um, anyways, at one point, Warren Beatty is running this whorehouse and he's trying to sell some guys on what to do. This is a line that I'd like to repeat one day to Ron McGill because it does involve animals. If you want more cookies, I got girls up in here that can do more tricks than a goddamn monkey with 100 yards of grapevine. I mean, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that, that is much more than just the guy in Times Square with a billboard. Girls, 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 come on in. Free drinks before 4 p.m. Come on in, guys. Go ahead. One drink, please. Sign the house. $5 admission. No, no. I got girls that can do more tricks than a goddamn monkey with 100 yards of grapevine. Later on, his character, John McCabe, in discussing the frustrations of life, says, hey, if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass so much. <laughs> Still not sure what that means, but again to repeat, if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass so much. I think he's talking about trying to get in and out of his own way. Um, it's what people call an anti-Western in that you think it's going in one direction instead it goes in the other direction. But I thought it was it was unique, it was funny, and I really like the ending, which is very famous for the cinematography. It's shot in the snow. There's this climactic shootout. So if you're into Robert Altman, if you like Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, check out McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Once again, it's available on HBO Max on the TCM. A couple of little blurbs here. Uh, this is one from Jack. Jake Wilson of The Age, Robert Altman's wintry 1971 anti-Western gives Warren Beatty one of his best roles as the doomed gambler McCabe. Boastful, shy, foolish, altogether lovable, and Jessica DeGrazia of Time Out, one of the best of Altman's early movies, using classic themes, the ill-fated love of gambler and whore, the gunman who dies by the gun, the contest between little man and big business to produce a non-heroic Western. I'll give it three maple leaves. I enjoyed McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Is it bad that I think of Warren Beatty only as the guy who screwed up the Oscar winner? <laughs> I thought you might go the guy who rapped in Bullworth, but no, yeah. I, I think Ben Lines and I have Moonlight joked that. Moonlight won Best Picture! <laughs> that in fairness to him, once he saw that it was wrong, he was the one just kind of looking. Like, he's like, uh, what do we do now? And then Faye Dunaway is the one who just says, La La Land. No, actually, it's just, and the winner is La La Land. So, <laughs> you're right that Beatty is always thought of as the guy who would always be a part of it because obviously he was there. But in fairness to him, he saw it, kind of sensed something was wrong, <laughs> and then Faye Dunaway went all in. But it was definitely memorable Oscars. Let's hope me and Chris Good on Jimmy get Kimmel. Good on Jimmy Kimmel there. Too. Oh, he was great. Always always very quick-witted. All right, Elvis Mitchell, all-time great film critic. I'm sure he's got thoughts on McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I didn't talk to him about that. I talked to him about his new documentary. He wrote it. He hosted it. He's really proud of it. Here he is. All right, he's one of my favorite film critics. Elvis Mitchell is a man who needs no introduction. Is yes, that- he does. He needs many introductions. Nobody cares. <laughs> um, he's obviously a great film critic. Fort Worth Star Telegram, the LA Weekly, Detroit Free Press. Of course, I know his work is the New York Times. And now he's made this tremendous documentary. It's called Is That Black Enough for You? Which I know that lyric from a song. I believe the song was in King of New York, if I'm not mistaken. But anyways, he's actually referencing... Hey, before on- that, yeah. Schooly D, absolutely right. But before yeah. that, it was a song by Billy Paul. And Schooly D samples the Billy Ball version. See, I can keep up with you kids and your hip hop. Tell me more about this. <laughs> in this distance, you're referencing Ozzy Davis, of course, the great actor. It was a 1970 benchmark. Cotton Comes to Harlem. And this is all about black cinema of the 1970s. Absolutely fascinating. To me, Elvis, if you said black cinema of the 70s, first thing I think of is Sweet Sweetback's badass song. So for those who are uh, unaware of its influence, why is that Van Peebles film such an important work? 
Oh my God, it does so much stuff. I mean, first of all, it's really this movie that it's an experimental film that deals with questions about sexuality and black identity and black self-possession and racism made for no money. I know if if you see in the clip, there's one point where somebody throws a Molotov cocktail at a car and walks over and grabs a car handle. That's not a stunt person. I mean, what this period is about is that that literally becomes a metaphor for seizing opportunities as they're burning around you. And this period the film is about from 1968 to 1978 is not just sweet back, but it's also, you know, it, it, it's also a movie that people may think of as a, as a black film, Night of the Living Dead, which is to say first film with a black protagonist with the gun who saves everybody. He's picked off at the end, but it also it touches on, the contributions of, again, you mentioned Oxie Davis, Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is adapted from the Chester Himes novel, which the movie takes really kind of a grim, tough kind of noir story and turns into this kind of fairy tale about these two Old Testament black cops saving Harlem from a, uh, from a, a person of color. And, and but it, in that case, the score is by Galt McDermott, who scored Hair and does a lot of stuff in the scoring terms that we can hear later on in other Black films. There's wah-wah guitar, but there's also jazz guitar, and there's the cymbal and hi-hat. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I think what I want this movie to do is make people ask questions about that period where you say often, you know, they'll say sweet back or Black exploitation, but it's so much more than that. And one of those films I love is Killer Sheep. I remember there's a book called The A-List, which is like the essential list. I don't know how many film critics were a part of it, but they have different characters, you know, writing about, let's say, the entertainer, the Olivia film, or, you know, Carrie Rickey's talking about, you know, whatever film she loves. It's a, an assemblage of critics. But that's where I first heard about Killer Sheep. And I said, oh, okay, this is it's literally called The A-List, 100 Essential Films You Must Watch. And Elvis, this was like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s when I read the book. So, like, I had to hunt that movie down. Like, I remember going to old video stores and go, hey, I need to find a film called Killer Sheep, Charles Burnett. It's in this book, 100 Essential Films. I got to see it. Like, okay. And it, it's extraordinary. And I think one of the great aspects of your doc is that you're shining a light on Charles's work and that film in particular, which I just thought was just so powerful for its time. But also the way it's influenced so many people. Is there a Halloween ends without David Gordon Green, who made his first film, George Washington, being inspired by that. There's this, for God's sake, there's like a steel, I'm sorry, homage to Killer Sheep in House Party. There's yeah. an homage to, to Killer Sheep in Martin Scorsese's Shutter Island. I mean, yeah. the impact of this movie, I mean, if, 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 if the movie business were like music and Charles Burnett got royalties, he'd be a wealthy man today and would deserve all of that because that movie... And it's one of the movies near the end of the film because it's 78 is about the promise of black film that the system the institutions weren't able to let flower, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned flower. Cause I oftentimes, again, you think of seventies films and just the sexualization of these black actors and actresses like Pam Greer as Foxy Brown or Jim Brown with the shirt off, you know, the emblem of masculinity or, or Roundtree and Shaft. Like just speak a little bit about that. And, uh, the mythology, I guess, of black actors, the sexualization of actors in a way that was really kind of different for, for much of white America. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, at one point, there was a point where if you had a black person talking to a white person on screen, that was adult entertainment. That was inversion. That was NC-17. They're talking to each other. Are they touching each other? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. So for these films to 
Or, I mean, Melvin Van Peebles would say it himself. He'd say it to me. You don't want to make a movie about a black rebel who smokes a cigar and has facial hair. Can you think about how few black actors in movies from that point had facial hair? And if they did, they were evil or scary people. And so just that kind of flipping uh, archetype must be generous and call it that on its head. But also you got the presence by that point in, in, in cultural terms and social terms of Muhammad Ali, who's about pride, who's about self-possession, who's about self-identity, who's about not pretending to be one person. And Ali does that thing where he becomes a figure who's the same person with white audiences as he is of black audiences. You know, so you don't have Sammy Davis Jr. doing one act for and one for a white audience. Or as the beginning of the movie, Ali shows us, Michael Mann's Ali, um, we get to see Sam Cooke doing this performance for a black audience. And it's not like the Sam Cooke you hear on record. And, and so these movies are about that period where black actors didn't pretend to be one thing on screen and something else for the black crowd. This is when Jim Brown goes, I'm taking off my shirt and Raquel Witch is going to touch me. She's going to like it. I'm taking off my shirt and Burt Reynolds is going to die with envy looking at me in the same movie. I mean, this is the idea is that there is this impudence and this fearlessness and this playfulness uh, and this sense of humor. I mean, all these things, because so much of, I hate to use the word binary, but so much of the way black culture was treated in film was this one thing, subservience. You know, not literally even being in the center of the frame, but occupying the left or right side and bowing and, 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 and then stepping out of the frame. And this period is about, in both art terms and popular terms, about occupying the center of the frame. There's so many great actors that you spoke to and filmmakers, Harry Belafonte, Charles Bernard, I mentioned Killer Sheep, Lawrence Fishman, Whoopi Goldberg, Samuel L. Jackson, Billy Dee Williams, Zendaya. Sam Jackson's a guy, like, if I just said to myself, Elvis, all right, which current actor could I just plunk down the 70s and it would totally fit in? I think Samuel Jackson is that guy, don't you? Well, he actually got his start in the, in the early 70s making movies. It's a movie happy has disappeared from view. And so when I was in junior high school, he said, let's not talk about that movie. I'm like, okay, you know what? You're right. But the only reason I did is because there's no clip to support. You, I mean, it's one of these movies that has disappeared from the face of the planet as if he went and bought up all the prints and and have them incinerated in a pyre in front of his house or something. But uh, you're talking about the people who are in the film, a lot of your subjects, many of them, for the most part, are people who were in these movies or worked on them. Fishburne got his start as a kid doing Cornbread, Earl and Me. Uh, you know, you've got Sam Jackson who got his start while he was in school at Morehouse. Uh, and you've got, then you've got two people, Mormon, who's now best known as Gordon on Sesame Street, who got his start in Willie Dynamite, or, or Antonio Fargus, who's an actor who's done so many different kinds of things. He's worked with directors such as Paul, Paul Mazursky, and, and then he, 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 done, he went from movies to then being the original Huggy Bear at Starsky and Hutch, and, and what his career includes. And then Glenn Turman, who was in the movie Cooley High, but he's also in this Ingmar Bergman movie, The Serpent's Egg. He was one of the people, and this is a fit into the film because I thought I've talked about too much, who was one of the three people who was a finalist for playing the role of Han Solo in Star Wars and didn't get it. The other two people, Harrison Ford being one, the other, of course, Christopher Walken. Because <laughs> all roles lead to Christopher Walken, finally, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do, Elvis, now that you mention, That's my very bad. Uh, oh, no, I got it. That's a great Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's amazing because the doc is 135 minutes and you're going through so much stuff there and what i love about it is that it's 
it's personal along with, you know, rather than chronological, like you're talking about your own influence on these films. That's why you narrate it. You're part of it. You got clips from all these movies and, and how they don't just exist in a vacuum, right? Like Michaud leads to Poitier, Poitier leads to Hayes. Like there's different lineage and lines that you can draw with this. And I thought particularly that, that quote that you have, you know, take pleasure in what you do. That belongs to you. That's part of a really fantastic quote, not only about your film, but I think all of cinema. Wow. I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's one of the things my grandmother used to say to me. And it's this thing that, because um, she's a, a very religious person and I'm not, so I was her heathen, but she, you know, forgave me for being a heathen. But she would, she did look at pride as being one of the seven sins. And she said, you can't do, you can't do that. It's, a, it's something you can be enslaved to. Take pleasure in what you're doing as you're doing it. Because finally, that's what you have. And that's what you can pass along to others. You can't give pride to other people, but you can give them pleasure. It's well said. And that's why the documentary, I think, is so powerful. And it, it just amplifies the fact that such a need for different voices. And, you know, I, I think you can appreciate that era of film. And then naturally look at black film today. I mentioned the lineage, the way films have gone. Where would you assess black cinema today? I think there's been inroads made. There's positives. We're about to have Wakanda Forever, which might be the biggest grossing movie of the year. And it's an all black cast. <laughs> The century? I mean, we're only 22 into the century, but it could end up being that. But I mean, that's an interesting case that gives us both hope and gives us because the one thing we know about the movie business is that when there's a big success, everybody imitates it. And there's been how many imitations of Black Panther since it came out and changed the world of movie going? One sort of with the woman king. But, you know, that, and how long did that take? And that was the director, Gina Prince-Bythewood, who should have got to direct action movies long ago because Love and Basketball proves she can stage an action sequence. So as much as Black Panther was this singular, this singular moment that should have changed everything, it ends up being just this singular moment, this moment that for most people probably is the exception rather than the rule, and that's the shame of it. So let's hope that the success, the overwhelming imminent success of Wakanda Forever will show, well, gee whiz, maybe there are other Black movies that can do this. But, you know, people try to explain away, oh, it's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and it's, it's, it's sui generis. It can't be like anything else. Well, no, that's, you know, uh, <laughs> there have been Marvel failures. All you got to do is watch Disney Plus and go, what is Moon Knight about? Oh, it's about six hours, isn't it? That's, anyway, that's, yeah. so the, that... The fact that Black Panther, to your point, has been that successful and certainly Wakanda Forever looks like it's going to be as successful as well, certainly being talked about in really enthusiastic terms, gives me hope. It also makes me ask questions, too. Yeah. Uh, and you look even on the small screen, someone like Watchmen, obviously, very provocative look at race and yet framed again within superheroes and what is so important in terms of pop culture. A couple more here with Elvis Mitchell and I'll let you go. Spike Lee is one of my favorite filmmakers. And I just often think about Do the Right Thing and how important that film is, just so what a microcosm it was. I can't believe there's anybody listening who hasn't seen it, but for somebody as learned as you, can you explain to them why Do the Right Thing is such an important American film and one of the great American films of all time? Because it does that thing that we want movies to do, that we want all art to do. And when a pop art does it, it's really great. First of all, it's one of the most beautiful films you'll ever see. Second, it's got one of the great opening songs that even though it makes fun of somebody named Elvis, I don't <laughs> hold that against it. Fight the Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for that little bit of PTSD there. Ma, <laughs> is that you? Is it time for school yet? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> but it, that 
song, but that opening sequence and the sheer audacity of that. And given it's a movie where a lot of people speaking to the camera, talking, oh my gosh. You know, I, I flashed on that movie after the, the, the Will Smith, Chris Rock moment. Because Will Smith, it's almost that like speech that John Turturro was giving to, <laughs> to Mookie, where he goes, Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, Prince, they're not. They're black, but they're not really black. Yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Will Smith went from probably not being perceived as not black to, oh, no, he's black. I mean, if that's not a do the right thing moment, and I know you thought that, that's why you're <laughs> laughing. You're oh, shoot, that's being, oh, my God. Right. Oh, he's talking. He's you, you could you could you could just add dub in the, the word Smith to that sequencing. Oh shoot. Yeah. Because you think about it, he, you know, right. he was kind of a pop star uh about the time that movie came out and pining to be a movie star. And so yeah, but do the right thing. That's your point. It's just look at not just black life, but the way black life is being threatened, the way it, the fight to hold itself together and all these voices it's got so many characters yet immediately as soon as somebody speaks we know who they are mm. really hard to pull off you think about all the movies or tv shows we see that have a bunch of characters that sound the same and do the right thing you know we know the difference between mookie versus sal <laughs> i mean and, and we know who everybody is you know the mayor we know all these characters not only from the way they speak from the way he introduces them, the way he uses the language of film to tell us who these people are and what this world is. He even has a young Martin Lawrence in it, because again, the roles don't take us back to Chris Walken, they take us to Will Smith, don't they? Yeah, it's funny, you know, obviously the, the everything everywhere all at once, one of the best movies of the year, but to me, that's kind of like do the right thing. Like Spike is just throwing the kitchen sink at the screen, so look at how smart I am, look how audacious I am, look how cock I am, and how smart and brilliant he is. He's just like you say, he's throwing it all up. There are different camera tricks and homages to films and all of it there. Last one for you. Only since you mentioned Scorsese and the fact there's an homage to Killer Sheep and Shutter Island, I have an enduring debate with friends about ranking Scorsese's best movies. So my father, putting on the spot here, but I, I feel it's always these three without question, Raging Bull, Taxi, or Goodfellas. Then you can start to argue four and five. I would go Mean Streets and The Irishman. But of course, I'm meeting people of a certain age and say, no, it's Wolf of Wall Street. It's The Departed. It's a lot of the newer films that he's made. For yourself, it's not silence. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the boring priest movie. I go, hey, I still thought there was a lot of power in that movie, but obviously not one that resonated for most. For you, Elvis Mitchell, you say, hey, Top Scorsese, one of the great directors of all time. What speaks to you? Listen, we can't do this list without Taxi Driver. I don't know if you can make this list without me. I always think, though, remember this movie called New York Stories? Yeah. And that short he did. Life Lessons with Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette, Man. I think is the greatest Martin Scorsese film ever made. It's only 24 minutes. And it's, 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 there's so much in it. And you, yeah. And, and, and it's such a beautifully told story. It's so well acted. And, and, and nothing feels like it's upstaged. I think it's one of the most beautiful short pieces of all time. And I say it's just somebody who's made a movie that's over two hours long. So I know the value of short when I have to. That's well said. Nick Dolte, Richard Price wrote the script, of course. Uh, great use of profile harem and all those great tracking shots. And you're right, it speaks about art, the artist, and the obsessiveness and how they can have personal relationships. It is that's a great call by you. New York Stories Life Lessons is a great one. Also great, is that black enough for you? The history of black cinema up to and through one of its most vital chapters in the 1970s. The great Elvis Mitchell. It is available on Netflix November 11th. I encourage all of you to check it out. Elvis, I'm a huge fan of your work. I can't thank you enough for giving me a chance. Thanks again. Thank this is terrific. Thank you, man. Uh, 
Thanks so much. A huge fan. You take care. You too. Thank you. All right, Elvis Mitchell, once again, check out the documentary. My friend Mark Kalmanichi, he thinks he's unbelievable. I agree. He's one of his favorite film critics. Very, very smart guy. Check out his work in the New York Times. Uh, lots more coming up here on Cinephile. Just a programming note. We're off for Thanksgiving week. So one more episode next week, and it is a big one. Wakanda Forever. Chris and I will mm-hmm. break down that huge movie. I mean, this is going to be the movie of the year, movie of the winter, and with Thanksgiving coming right around the corner, one of my all-time, not just favorite comedies, all-time favorite movies, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yes. 35th anniversary. Those aren't pillows. Should we Plus, get my mom on? Is your mom a huge fan? She's it's her favorite movie of all time. Uh, you have told me this. You're right. Okay. Maybe Mrs. Cody comes on as well. We shall see. Um, we also have a special guest. At the, the very least, I'll get her to do like a minute clip, like send in like yeah. a minute of breaking it down. Sure. Give us give us your guest review of Planet Trains and Automobiles. We can look get, that'll that. get us some downloads. It knows that my mom, uh, Arlene yeah. Cody, making an appearance. That'll, that'll, that'll that's a big get. Um, also, Weird Al, uh, Weird, the Al Yankovic story movie is available right now on Roku. The director, Eric Apple, is going to join us, writer and director, next week on Cinephile. So thanks for checking us out. Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Great episode coming up. And this is a great episode as well. I'll see you at the movies. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.